I'm Robin. And I'm Wayne. We're investors at VMG Partners, and we help build iconic consumer brands. Every day, some of the world's most fascinating founders share their stories with us before they've made it. Their highs and lows. Mistakes and triumphs. But always extraordinary results. And now we're sharing these stories with you. This is Unfinished Biz. On this episode of Unfinished Biz, we chat with Adam Lowry, co-founder of Method, a little eco-friendly cleaning product startup you've probably never heard of. Just kidding. Method was already a household name when it was acquired by Ecover in 2012. But despite all that success, sharing a first-time co-founder role with a longtime friend wasn't easy for Adam. Oh, it was a hot mess. I mean, it was awful. We were really good friends when we started the business. We're better friends now. We're really different people. And we hated each other for a, a number of years. Armed with the knowledge of what to do differently the next time around, Adam's at it again, now co-CEO at Ripple Foods, a plant-based food brand looking to replace what Adam thinks are less healthy incumbents. We make dairy alternatives that uh, we like to say are dairy-free the way they should be, which is high in protein and low in sugar and really delicious. And the way we're able to do that is through a technology that we developed that allows us to make the purest plant protein anywhere in the world. Find out how Method's do's and don'ts laid the foundation for Ripple Foods, Adam's dedication to massive consumer change, and why technology gives him hope. Unfinished Biz starts now. So what I really loved about the Method story is that it's really a story about two very, very different co-founders and you know the conflicts that they actually had and that journey that they actually went on together. Absolutely. I mean, I guess what they say is, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? (laughs) Well, speaking of that, we had Method co-founder Eric Ryan on an upcoming episode of Unfinished Biz, so we'll get a chance to hear his story then. But for now, we sat down with Adam at VMG's worldwide headquarters in San Francisco to learn a little bit more about his scientific background, how the huge hit Method came to be, and why Ripple Foods, they want to completely change how people eat. Yeah, for me, it was really born out of frustration, which I think it is for a lot of entrepreneurs. I was somebody that really wanted to use my career to create impact. And the way that I did that first was by becoming a climate scientist. Uh, My job was to, I was actually building and running big computer models that were predicting what would happen as we put more CO2 in the atmosphere and things like that. And uh, I was naive to think that by studying that and showing what was going to happen, that that could create some change. And unfortunately, it didn't. Um, and unfortunately, it kind of still doesn't in, in this country anyway. And so that's what really led me down the path of maybe business was a better way to create impact than what I was doing before. And at what age did you, did you re- come to that realization? Yeah, I was about four or five years out of undergrad. So I was about 25 years old when I came to the realization that at least what I was doing then was not creating the impact that I was looking for. And I've always been somebody that really believes that you don't need to decide what you want to do with the rest of your life or what uh, what you need to do for your whole career. I'm always one that says, just, just decide what you want to do next. Right. And... I didn't know exactly where life would lead me, but I knew that what I was doing was not scratching that itch to have impact, and I was looking for a better way to do that. So what what was next? So next was starting Method Products. I started with a guy named Eric Ryan, and uh, 
the idea was really to make relevant to a mainstream audience a product that had sustainability and health built into it. And it's important to kind of think about that in the context of where natural and organic or sustainable products, whatever label you want to put on them, where those products were in late the late 90s and early 2000s. Basically, very, very, very small categories marketed only to a very, very small audience that was making, willing to make very large sacrifices in the name of sort of doing the right thing. And I just couldn't think of a brand that had ever had been successful based on a proposition of this is a bad product, but it's better for the world, so you should buy it. But, but why cleaning products? Yeah, I mean, cleaning products, the way we got to that, Eric and I kind of sat around and we thought, well, uh, I, I kind of had this hypothesis um, that we could use business to create positive impact, which, of course, is a very mainstream idea now, but um, was you know pretty cutting edge almost 20 years ago. Uh, Eric was came at things from sort of a brand standpoint and thought, well, you know, why are all the brands in the cleaning space really kind of dull? And so we started kind of talking about, well, what about what what are the ugliest and the sort of most toxic or unhealthiest or most least environmentally friendly sort of categories we can think of? And we just kind of started going through the grocery store and we're like, well, you know, cleaning products are pretty ugly and pretty toxic. A whole aisle of them. (laughs) A whole aisle of them. Bingo. (laughs) So so let's start here. And um, we did literally start the business with – with absolutely no experience in cleaning products whatsoever. And you guys were roommates at that time, right? When you were thinking about all this? Yeah, that's right. So we lived in uh, the dirtiest flat in San Francisco. Or <laughs> I don't know if I should say that. I should say, um, so Eric and I live with three other guys in our mid-20s, bachelor pad, right. San Francisco. Yep. I like to describe it as exactly as clean as you would think that type okay. of flat would be, Yep. which is a very ironic place for a cleaning products company to be born. Um, But nonetheless, that, yeah, that is the case. Um, I'm a chemical engineer by education. And so I did all the initial product design and, and uh, including the formulation of the product. And we were doing that quite literally in beer pitchers uh, in that, uh, (laughs) in that apartment uh, a million years ago. And then we actually, started selling the product door-to-door to to grocery stores. Anybody ever accidentally drink the wrong pitcher? It had a nice little label on it um, that said, do not drink. There's actually a picture of it in a book that Eric and I wrote uh, many years after the fact called The Method Method. Um, There's a picture of that beer pitcher. (laughs) I I love that you guys took a picture of it. That's (laughs) that's very, uh, it's good foresight there. Yeah, yeah, you you know, win or lose, you got to keep a record of this stuff. Right. What, what was it like? Because obviously you guys are roommates. Uh, you guys are cooking up an idea together. You know, the separation between sort of friendship, coming up with an idea and being first time entrepreneurs. I mean, that's a fine line. It Was it, was it easy? Was it natural? Oh, it was a hot mess. <laughs> I mean, it was awful in a lot of ways. Um, Eric and I are really good friends. Mm-hmm. We're, uh, we were really good friends when we started the business. Mm-hmm. We're better friends now. We're really different people. And we hated each other for a, a number of years. And, you know, honestly, I think that that's probably one of the most profound things that I've actually gone through in my entire career was, mm-hmm. and ultimately for both Eric and I, it was really a learning experience about ourselves and how we were being perceived, how we were communicating, what we were perceiving versus what we, mm-hmm. we were hearing versus what was being said. 
Um, Eric and I do have very, very different perspectives. Um, we even have slightly different sort of value sets on things. And that led to conflict that as two guys in their mid to late 20s, we honestly weren't well equipped to deal with that. Um, we did ultimately invest in, um, and thankfully to our board of that company at that time, invest in some professional coaching. Mm -hmm. And we just, I mean, it got very, very real. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I, I think it's, um, it, it's every bit like a marriage. I mean, it is, you are married to this person, except it's like even more stressful in some ways, um, less than others. Uh, and you've got to have skill sets to be kind of, to get through that. And that is something that, you know, I, I don't think anybody really knows when you go into a business with a partner that, that how intense that is. And mm -hmm. it was really, really intense. And, you know, it, it, it ended up being something where, you know, there were times when we didn't really want to communicate with each other very much. And that has a huge negative impact on the business. And, and, you know, fortunately we and others recognize that and, changed it, but it was not like it changed overnight. I mean, this was like years of working on getting better working with one another. Did you find that it happened overnight or was it something that just kept building? And it, and next thing you know, next thing you knew it was it, the, the relationship had changed. Yeah. I think more the latter than the former. I think it's just something you're in it. You roll, you got your sleeves rolled up, you're breathing through a straw, whatever metaphor you want to use. <laughs> They're all appropriate. I think, uh, and you're just trying to get shit done. And, and at the end of the day, you're not really worried about maintaining those, you know, those relationships or kind of reading between the lines or understanding the nuances. I think that's also just part of being a younger entrepreneur. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm a lot older now and, you know, I understand those things. And when I go through my day, I can recognize when a situation has occurred where, you know, maybe we got something done or we got a result, but there was a little bit of maybe collateral damage done on the, you know, how you're motivating that person or how you're recognizing them for busting their ass to get something done that was really hard, even if it wasn't perfect. And, and I think that's, you know, that's just developing leadership skill over time. Is there any inevitability that you find in, if you start a business with a co-founder that this occurs, or do you, do you think it can be avoided? I think it can be avoided. You know, my I, I've now started a second business called Ripple Foods, and I've started that with a guy named Neil Renninger. Um, Neil and I um, work really, really well together, but we also started out both in our forties when we and and also mm -hmm. both had previous businesses with co-founders, and so I think we were able to apply a lot of those lessons. It's still intense, right? You have to you're you're making really important decisions with this person every day and so uh it's not like it is automatic by any stretch of the imagination but i think it's a learned skill i mm -hmm. really do and i think that what what i was naive about 20 years ago was that i thought maybe uh that that talent could so could sort of get you through and if i could talk to my 20 year ago my 25 year old self i would say i'd slap him across the face <laughs> and say listen you got to learn this stuff and you know experience helps um, but it's not just experience it's also paying attention and learning and having that uh, i think self-awareness is a huge huge a hugely underestimated skill mm -hmm. with uh, entrepreneurs i think there's a there's often 
a romanticized notion of the entrepreneur as the sort of hard driving decision maker guy or gal and blah, whatever. No, I actually think that um, it, it, it goes way beyond that. And I think that um, self-awareness and developing those leadership skills are actually uh, are absolutely critical ultimately to whether or not your business succeeds or fails. And in your opinion, is leadership or executive coaching, is that is that helpful? Um, is that something that you, you advocate for, for sort of up-and-coming entrepreneurs? What I advocate for is dedicating time to getting better at leadership. I think how to do that probably depends a lot on the type of person and the type of business. Mm-hmm. We all know there are great leadership coaches out there, and there are shitty ones. Mm-hmm. Um, the one that Eric and I worked with, by the way, was pretty good, mm-hmm. you know, but it wasn't actually revolutionary, the coaching itself. What it ultimately came down to was he and I, each as individuals, dedicating ourselves to working through the pain that was required to for each of us to get better and therefore become better leaders and help lead the business to success. And that's all, I mean, at, at the end of the day, it's really a decision you have to make about yourself. Right. And so you're, you're talking about the method journey, you know, after you chemical engineering background started formulating product, how did, so how did you get it in the market? Our approach early on was, well, it was, it was partially because we wanted to learn and partially because we didn't have a choice. But our, <laughs> our, our first approach was, hey, we're going to go and try to sell this product ourselves because the proposition was really different. It was, hey, here's a premium cleaning product. We're going to give you a trade-up in a category that you don't even ever really think about. It's just sort of a commoditized category. And we're going to do that by bringing a better product experience where the sustainability and the non-toxicness is built into the product. And those were, frankly, things that most people just did not care about at that time, nor were they even aware of, right? Um, green cleaning as a category was was sort of a rounding error. That's right. And so uh, we, we thought, okay, let's go out and get some cycles on trying to tell this story. And doing it at a local level will allow us to really learn a lot. Um, we also didn't have a lot of money, so we didn't have salespeople and we didn't have, uh, people that could represent us to get into major customers. We didn't even have enough money to make enough product to send it to our customers' warehouses. We had to walk through the front door (laughs) with a bag of product and handwritten invoices and count bottles by the like singles and, and do it that way. And, you know, that was a really valuable experience, and I'm really glad on Ripple Foods that I didn't have to do it. <laughs> um, you know, I hooked into a couple of mentors, mm-hmm. um, some of which were sort of not what you would expect. I, I grew up in the Detroit area. I had some connections in the auto industry, so a guy that I spent some time with was Bob Lutz, who's the guy, oh. kind of product yeah. guy known yeah. in the car industry, and he's worked for a number, number of different companies. Um and that was just somebody that I had the opportunity to kind of bounce ideas off uh, off of really early on in the method journey. And, it, it, you know, that was an example of like an unexpected one where, right. you, where it just kind of helped keep the juices flowing from a from a product first mentality, which but the reason it was helpful is because at method and my new business, Ripple Foods, very much the same thing. They're very product first, product focused businesses. Right. Um, I'm one that believes that marketing is a tax on an unremarkable product. And uh, if you can win with product, it's ultimately a more effective way to build a profitable business than 
a kind of also ran type of product that, you know, you try to win on the marketing. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, Bob really helped me kind of build that into the, to the method ethos. And I think that's something I've taken with me. I think there were also other ones that, um, you know, are more or less, more and less helpful, (laughs) but I think it's just, you know, you learn over time, um, what your style is and, you know, you try to, you try to develop your weaknesses and lean into your strengths. Mm -hmm. And then as you guys were going along this journey, what, how did you divide, divide up what Eric focused on and what you did? That was pretty easy because we we did really <laughs> really different, different things, yeah. Yeah. Um, and in fact, it was probably more a a, a uh, driving force of some of the times when we didn't get along was kind of different opinions about things. But on the plus side, we had two very very different perspectives on every problem, and so as long as you could bring those things together, that's actually much better. Eric would always say, "Listen, if we had the same point of view, you know, one of us is is redund- is redundant." Um, but yeah, my background was really product and, uh, in, in to a lesser degree, you know, I'd worked a little bit in business before, um, from an operational standpoint. And so, and I'm also somebody who, um, can do and embraces the analytical and the numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, Eric, um, it has trouble spelling words and I can say that on this podcast because <laughs> I've told him that many times. Nice. Um, he likes to say that, you know, he's creative with his spelling. Um, <laughs> and you could say that, uh, and he's just got a different kind of brain on him. Right. And it's a more, um, sort of pure creative type, right brain type of thing. And so early on, it was really about bringing those things together, collaborating on product to create something really unique. And then as we moved forward in the business, he obviously navigated more toward the, marketing side of things uh i gravitated more towards the the product and operation side of things and then as we started to build out the team of course um one thing that i do think we did really well is we really compensated we were very honest about what we weren't good at and we compensated for those things with uh, the people that we that we hired around us and what what roles did you find were most critical to complement you guys yeah early on actually the the first full employee of method other than us. Um, and actually the first one to get paid any money was, uh, the CEO that we hired. So Mm -hmm. we actually hired a CEO. We needed to raise some money, um, because we, we couldn't self finance the business and we had never raised capital before. And here we were, I mean, let me set the the scene for you. Okay. So it's like January of 2000, uh, the NASDAQ is at 5,000. Okay. It's higher than that now, but you know, for what, 15 years, it was at, you know, right. down right. to 2000 and coming back. Um, NASDAQ's at 5,000. Everything's a dot com. The bubble hasn't burst. And you have these two guys <laughs> who are going to build a cleaning product company right. that are, you know, both of which are 25. Right. Eric looks like he's about 13. He actually still looks like he's about 13. Um, and, not, neither of us had built a business before nor raised capital before. And so we thought, all right, this is this is clearly we need to get some, you know, adult supervision in here. So we, we did and we got that person. And then we started to build out things like um, earned media capability or PR capability, sales, which was something that uh, the CEO we had had some experience with. And, and who, who was that, by the way? Uh, the first CEO of the business was a guy named Alistair Dorward. So okay. Alistair came from sort of a consulting background and then had a couple and, and also a consumer background. Had worked at a couple of consumer uh, shops before, actually had done a startup before, raised money before. Yep. Um, and he was the CEO of the business for about the first seven years. And 
um, really helped us through actually all of the rounds of financing that we that we had in that business. Um, and we worked really closely with Alistair to kind of build out the team that we needed to, um, you know, to scale the business, which over the course of that seven years, I mean, we went from a garage to, you know, more than a hundred million in sales. Right. So when, when the CEO came in, it was a, it was a, a pretty early stage. I mean, what were, I mean, sales oh, yeah, were, was, sales are pretty. When know. we brought him on, we probably had $10,000 in cumulative sales. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, so early. So how were decisions made between two co-founders and an outside CEO? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's actually an interesting question, not just with Alistair, but um, the CEO of uh, Method these days is a guy named Drew uh, Frazier. And Drew, um, you know, we, we, we hired Drew. And for Eric and I, before we stepped down to start our second businesses, Drew was our boss. Yep. So mm-hmm. in both of those instances, you have, we hired our boss. And... It is an interesting dynamic because you have two founders that have, uh, as all founders do, have pretty um, clear points of view about how they want to do things and the way things should be done. And you have a CEO who is responsible for all of the things that a CEO is responsible for. So, I mean, I guess the way I would describe it is um, on day-to-day decisions – you, you know, we needed to have a CEO that made the ultimate call of if we we're going to go this direction or that direction. And, and it was important for us to align, even if we didn't agree sometimes, and go that direction. Um, you, if you hire a CEO and you don't allow her or him to do that, um, you haven't hired a CEO. Yeah, they're not really a CEO. So, mm-hmm. um, right. so we had to do that. Yep. At the same time, you know, we're in the boardroom together. And we're talking strategy and trying to plan the business sort of sort of as equals, right? So um, that sort of dual dynamic existed with Alistair, and, and it existed with, uh, with Drew as well. And then when you talk to entrepreneurs today, um, when is there, is there a telltale sign or is there something that you're looking for when the advice is maybe you do need someone like a president or a CEO, you know, as opposed to founder CEO? Um, or the founder being the CEO? Yeah, I mean, I think it's honestly a, a question of skill set. And I think it's one, it's a hard question because it's a very introspective question about do you have the capabilities to really be CEO? And what is the difference between that and being a founder? I mean, being a founder, having been one for the last 20 years in a couple of businesses, can be a very nebulous sort of term. You know, it's like, what is a founder's job description? Like Mm -hmm. nobody really knows the answer to that question. Um, so I think it's hard to kind of put a, put a point on it, but, uh, ultimately you need, uh, somebody that can be accountable for, uh, the, the decisions when the dust settles and can do, that can lead the people from um, all the way across the business that has the capability to understand and plan and learn and innovate in all parts of the business, right? Marketing, sales, Mm -hmm. ops, you know, product, whatever, R&D. And probably has some experience too. You know, I I don't know that I've ever met somebody that could just sort of cold go and be able to do that job really, really well. So... Um, you know, it's, it, it's hard to say an individual moment, but I think part of it is when, when is the stage of the business where that type of, uh, leadership and capabilities really needed number one, and then how close are you with the founder or founders that you have? And is, 
one or more of them capable of, of stepping into that role and being effective. And I think that one of the things that Eric and I, I think, did well is we recognized that we weren't, we weren't that guy uh, early on. And maybe it wasn't real hard to re- recognize from the level of experience that we had, but uh, we, we, didn't, we didn't want to stand in the way of our own success. And so um, we made that call. It was the right call. Um, obviously the CEO changed at some point. So the business needs changed at some point. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that's a, that's always a a difficult thing when you need to make those types of decisions for, for everyone involved. But, you know, ultimately you've got to, you you know, you got to keep that, you got to try to keep that level of objectivity about your business, um, and, and be able to be just a, a step removed from it. So you can zoom out and see it for what it is, um, to be able to make those types of decisions, I think. When were you confident that you guys were clearly on to something? Was it when you hired the CEO or was it another time? Are we on to something? I don't know, man. That This question of like, uh, you know, I think you probably heard it from other entrepreneurs, but you never, ever get to a point where you're like, oh, yeah, totally. Nailed it. <laughs> Nailed it. Yeah, done. You know? Yeah. Um, you know, when we were on to something, I think um, I think the best evidence actually comes from the people that use your products and in listening to them really carefully. And I think that the moment for me was when I was in some consumer research. We were doing some research, and it wasn't quite a focus group, but we were talking to some consumers. And I heard a woman articulate – um, some of the struggles that, you know, pretty much all modern moms and, you know, and, 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 uh, and many women go through, which is like, how do I balance, you know, the career side and the family side and like make it all work and all of this. And, and she sort of, she got to a point where she was like, listen, this, this, this method product actually helps me, you know, kind of be the type of mom I want to be a little bit better. And I was just like, what? <laughs> Talking about a cleaning product. You're like, that's exactly what I was designing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but but it, it, what it told me is that it was, it was delivering on sort of an emotional benefit that's right. um, because it was delivering something that she didn't know she could have, which mm-hmm. was um, a product that worked great and it looked great on the countertop that was sort of pleasant and pleasurable to use because it you know, smelled good and looked good. Um, and gave her a peace of mind because, you know, she had kids at home and she didn't want them to be, you know, interacting with bleach or all these other sort of toxic chemicals. And, and, um, and that, that said, okay, there's something really here, um, to, to go with. And that happened actually very, very early on in the business. And how did method become so synonymous with target? Yeah. I mean, a little bit by accident and some of that wasn't actually, good. Um, so target is really strategic and they understand categories and how to develop categories. And, um, while we had some trouble kind of getting started there, we can talk about that if you want. Um, once we did get going and we started to have some success at target, um, they were seeing that what we were really doing was bringing some profitability back to a category that was, it's, it's a frequency category. It's generally lost leader. Um, Bottom line, without going into the strategic points, we were providing something for Target that they weren't getting from their other products and vendors. 
And once they recognized that, they really leaned in. And so what Target did is they gave us way more shelf space than anybody else in the country um, to the extent that actually we had a lot of people out there that actually thought that Method was Target's private label. Um, and, you know, that's not, uh, that's not a healthy thing from a brand standpoint. It was great for, you know, people who – it was a great association, right? right. I mean, Target right. and, like, yeah. you know, people got it. And and the brand aesthetics between Target and and, and excuse me Lined method really are well. yeah. are similar enough that you can see how that you know w- would happen. Um, but they basically just leaned in so heavy because we were providing something that they weren't getting from their other um, uh, retailers that it kind of started to seem that way. Um, but that created other business issues. I mean, we had a lot of Target concentration for a number of years in terms of our. You know, percentage of revenue in that business and we needed to diversify while still making sure that target was a destination and was really special for um the method brand and um you know that wasn't necessarily easy but we did sort of navigate that over a series of years and how do you do that did you give them special SKUs that were protected only for target did they did you did they have exclusivity on new items how did you how did you navigate that tricky yeah i think Maybe not as well as I hope we're navigating it with Ripple Foods because we're definitely doing it differently. I mean, with Ripple, and we'll, I guess we'll get there in a second, I'm really trying to apply a lot of the things that I think we could have done better um, in, in Method. But with, with Method, Target really, because they leaned, so mu- leaned in so much on our product and because we were providing value to them, they wanted to see us do that in lots of other adjacent categories. And with Method, our strategy was always that we wanted to build one brand that had uh, brand equities that could extend all the way across cleaning from laundry to, you know, glass cleaners to dish soaps and hand soaps. If you think about it, most companies have a different brand in every one of those categories. So we wanted to have a master brand and Target was giving us a market on ramp with immediate national distribution to be able to flex our muscles from a product development standpoint. And so that was a really important and strategic way for us to lower the executional risk of bringing new products to market because in the consumer space, as you guys know very well, um, it's, it, it's it more, a lot more products fail than they do, than they do succeed. And so to have that sort of, Launch it was yeah, yeah. Launchpad was was really key, but to some extent that only exacerbated the concentration problem, right? <laughs> yeah. And so at, you know, at a lot of times you you're kind of doing that while you're trying to get other other customers to say like, you know, hey, this is working, you know, kind of take this, right? But by the time you did that, you were launching the next new thing at Target, right? And it was like that for a little while, but um, you know, through a lot of concerted effort and and you know, and, and several years of sustained effort, we were. You know, we started to move the needle where Target actually for the Method brand is still growing really, really quickly. Um, and, you know, there were other customers that we tried to grow even more quickly um, in order to balance out just the the risk that's inherent of having one customer be a lot of your business. I mean, the, the, the Method story comes up all the time within emerging brands and wanting that brand destination like Method had or has at, at Target. Were you able to successfully leverage that story to build brand destinations at other retailers? Uh, yeah, yeah, we were. I think it's different at other retailers because their needs are a little bit different. So Target's obviously a mass market retailer. Uh, they have more space generally than a grocery store will have and a different assortment sometimes than than a grocery store will have. So I think what 
what you have to do is you have to understand what drives value for that customer and then put yourself in the position to say, how can we drive value for you? And what does our brand play? How, how does our brand play a role in that? And I think that's one thing that we did very well. And I think it's one thing that a lot of consumer businesses honestly don't do well. They say, oh, I got the next great product. Like, you should buy it. Mm-hmm. And that's their sales pitch. And then their sales pitch is about the features and benefits of the product. Um, when they skip that step, right, of thinking about the retailer, they're just going directly to the consumer. This is so great because for consumer X, I'm fulfilling all these needs. But yeah. what you're saying is partnering, actually thinking about what the retailer wants. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they're, they're, they're your customer, right? Our consumer is their customer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but we've got to, we've got to provide value for the people that are retailing our products. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that point of view is, is really important. And it also forces you to understand what's really valuable about your brand. Well, obviously with all that growth required capital needs, I mean, how did you guys think about fundraising during your method journey? <laughs> Take it when you can get it. <laughs> um, fundraising was not easy for, for method. Um, you know, we raised, we ran the business first of all for the first two years off of, you know, nickels and dimes that we got from friends and family, uh, and very much the starving entrepreneur story. I mean, not nobody getting paid, um, certainly getting paid, no, no, no real money going into the business. It was just about surviving. And then when we got to the point where we said, okay, we need to, we need to raise some capital from an outside source, it took us almost two years to do that. Um, we ultimately closed that round uh, just after September 11th of mm-hmm. 2001. So it was a very sort of tumultuous time mm-hmm. in the markets and yep. just in culture and society. And it was a very small round. We raised a million dollars. It was in two tranches, um, 400 and 600. And the legal bills for the deal were $110,000. And how big was the business at around? around we had $90,000 in revenue. Got it. Yeah. Got it. Um, and, and no employees. Right. Yeah. I mean, to, to let you know how crazy this was, okay? So our due diligence binder, which was a binder, wasn't a data room at that time. It was right. like a physical binder, was 1,700 pages long. And it included, we had to get physicals. Eric and I had to go to the doctor and get physicals. Oh, wow. And it included the software licenses for Microsoft Word on our home computers. Oh, wow. Well, at least you didn't pirate it. At least you didn't (laughs) use pirated software, huh? Yeah, I mean, I guess Method would not be here today if we would have pirated Microsoft Word Word, in 1998. How many times did you guys raise capital during? We raised four rounds. Yeah, so ABCD. um, We raised about 26 all-in paid-in capital. Um, The last round was in 2004, and the business kind of broke even in 2005. And in the early years when you were actually fundraising, the no's, what, what was the rationale for the no like, that you heard most consistently? Well, was, you know, was, that's a very interesting question because it, it changed radically hmm. over the course of trying to raise capital. So when we first started out, it was, you know, where's your website and your <laughs> you know, e-commerce strategy? And we were like, well, actually, our business model is here's a cleaning product and if you think we can sell a lot of it in a grocery store like it's a good right. investment and but they like you, didn't even want to talk to us right it's like how does this how does this do what does it do with the computer you know? yeah yeah, oh, yeah maybe it cleans the computer <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah it cleans the computer that's about it right 
and then the bubble burst and, you know, it was wasteland for a while. And then all of a sudden it became a little bit more in vogue that our business model was something that you literally could understand. The product was something you could put in your hand and you could put on a table and, you know, touch and feel. Um, so, you know, it did vary a lot, but I think a lot of it also was just the, um, the, the venture capital community was obviously vastly different 20 years ago. And, we also were finding our way, you know, we didn't really know what we were looking for. And, um, you know, we, we ultimately were successful in finding some great partners, um, fortunately, but, uh, I wouldn't say it was because, you know, we, we nailed it from the get go. Mm -hmm. When did you know it was time to sell method? Yeah. You know, I always have my approach to, to building and continuing to sustain and grow sustainable businesses or businesses that create impact is that, you know, when businesses, the ownership of businesses change, that, that just, that's a constant, that change. The question isn't, is the ownership going to change? It's, it is when it changes, is it going to be better for the business in terms of helping that business uh, execute on its social and environmental mission better than it could before, grow better or faster than it did before? Is it good for the, you know, the people within the business from a development standpoint um, and last, and definitely least important, maybe maybe my some of my investors would disagree with this, but um, it, it, the price had to be right, right? The, the shareholder value had to be there. And that's still the way I feel. Now, you know, Method had a number of moments through its history where people were interested in it and came and talked to us. And that was really the filter I always used, right? Is, is this going to enhance our social and environmental mission? Is it going to help us? be a better business than we were before? Is it, um, you know, will people hopefully most or all keep their jobs and will it be good financially for the shareholders? And the, when we did sell the business in 2012, you know, I'm proud to say all four of those met the conditions were met and literally every single person in the business kept their job. Um, and so it was a great way. And, uh, you know, if you think about a, a business that's sustainability minded like like method is i mean there's no better proof that we enhanced our social and environmental mission than what we did after we sold the business you mm -hmm. know venture back business doesn't have a big balance sheet we sell the business now we've got a balance sheet method built um the the what has got to be the most sustainable manufacturing facility in in the country in the south side of chicago uh totally renewably powered on-site wind and solar landfill free Water neutral. It's got the largest rooftop greenhouse in the world, growing leafy greens in a food desert um, on its roof. In the city limits of Chicago, hundreds of green manufacturing jobs in a city that desperately needs them. And that all happened after we sold the business, right? So I think that's a great example of how things should go in the life cycle and development of a sustainable business. And it from so for me, I guess you know it's maybe a longer answer than you wanted, but for me, it's like. Right. It's, I think this idea of like selling and selling out and like, yes, it's totally possible to like build a business and sell out. That's totally possible. But it's, it's sort of like if you do that, it's sort of shame on you because you, you kind of destroyed what probably made it good to begin with. Mm -hmm. And as you look back on your method journey, what were some of the things, what, what are the top things you would have done differently? How much time do we have? <laughs> uh, you said the top things, right? Yeah, right. I made sure to use, right. an, use an adjective. 
So in 2008, um, the economy was in the shitter and um, a bunch of our competitors had launched or a a bunch of the sort of big guys had launched competing sort of green brands. They weren't Mm -hmm. necessarily very interesting, but they were like, hey, I'm going to say this is green and put a flower on it from the like toxic big guy. Um, But they put hundreds of millions of dollars into the market. Um, we're kind of getting attacked on all sides and we had overextended ourselves. Um, this is a self-inflicted wound and we had gotten in a bunch of different businesses all at the same time. And we weren't able to support all of those. All of a sudden we were not able to support all of those businesses. These are different product lines. Yeah. Different product Got lines. It. Exactly. Yeah. Um, all at the same time. Um, and we had to shrink the business by about a quarter or no, by about a third we had to lay off a quarter of our people, and uh, I had to lay off one of the groomsmen in my wedding. Oh, really good friend of mine, and uh. that was the worst moment in my career. And I don't want to do that again. Um, and that was a lesson hard learned, right? But I also think that there is a lot of other. Um, I think there are a lot of other lessons around um, what creates value in um with your consumers and leaning into what's creating value um there were times early on where we we over designed the product and and made it like almost too gilded Mm -hmm. um and it wasn't driving enough uh margin for the business for us to reinvest as much back into growing that business that'd be sort of one small example um and I think just the way that you sort of design and approach um, building an organization itself. I think we uh, ultimately, Eric and I wrote a book about this, which I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, and that book is full of all the mistakes we made from a cultural standpoint, which was, you know, not putting in the infrastructure that allows a culture to scale early enough. Um, and so those are, you know, sort of three examples of things that I'm trying to do differently and better in in Ripple now. Right after the break, we'll talk more with our guest, Ripple Foods' Adam Lowry. Unfinished Biz is a VMG Partners production. You can catch up on all of our episodes at unfinishedbiz.com and chat with us on Twitter at unfin underscore biz. Subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or any podcast app of your choice. Have a great suggestion for upcoming episode? We're all ears. And now back to our episode with Ripple Foods' Adam Lowry. Well, speaking of Ripple, tell us a little bit about how you transitioned from selling the company and into into starting another company. Yeah, so for me, you know, I measure my my success in terms of impact. And when you start a business that's creating a lot of great impact, like Method does. Um, you sort of reach a point where does it make sense for me to continue to build this thing that is already big and has scale and is growing great and it's amazing, or should should I try to do that again and create another new thing? And I've wrestled with that for a long time. I was also really getting interested in the food space because food, you know, in terms of impact, has much larger impacts than uh, both environmentally and from a, a human health and nutrition standpoint than cleaning products uh, do. So. I was getting really interested in the food space and I was just kind of having that itch also to kind of build again from the ground up. And so, you know, ultimately in 2015, I made the decision that 
um, along with my co-founder at, at Ripple Foods, uh, Neil Renninger, to say, okay, um, there's a really amazing idea here that we can use to um, to build. And so I very carefully um, made a transition between uh, Method and Ripple. I actually, there was a six-month period of time where I was a half-time employee at both places. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was very intentional to make sure that I set up the right people I got people in that could, you know, institutionalized me as a founder and the job that I was doing and replaced all of that so that that I was leaving knowing that I had done my very, very best to keep that business, um, what little I was contributing at that phase to its success that I could keep, that it would continue to be contributed. Um, And then, you know, jumped whole hog into Ripple Foods and, you know, what Ripple does. Um, So we make dairy alternatives that uh, we like to say are dairy-free the way they should be, which is high in protein and low in sugar and really delicious. And the way we're able to do that is through a technology that we developed that uh, allows us to make the purest plant protein anywhere in the world. And so um, we've kind of cracked one of the most important codes within making plant-based foods taste delicious, which is getting rid of that sort of planty flavor. And we started with non-dairy milks, and we're now expanding the range. So... You wanted to get into the food space, but how did you come up with this particular idea? I wanted to get in the only space that was lower margin than cleaning products. That was <laughs> nice. my goal. That was my goal. <laughs> yeah. It's like we, yeah, yeah. Was, like, how can I do this right. harder? The same, but harder. <laughs> exactly. Um, it's like, well, I've already, I've already overcome one challenge, so you got to <laughs> yeah. raise the stakes. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think that, so for me, I'm, I'm like a product guy. And I, my wife always jokes with me. She's like, your next business, you need to only make ones and zeros. Like, <laughs> you know, do not make real things. Like, right. it's a bad business model. <laughs> um, but, like, I love real stuff, yep. right? Mm-hmm. I just love real stuff. Uh-huh. And so um, I also think from an impact standpoint, personally, I'm very motivated by reinventing everyday staples. Because I think that psychologically there's something very important that happens um, from from a broader society standpoint, when you show somebody that they can have something that's really amazing from a product experience that's also either better for them or more nutritious or more sustainable in its impacts on, on um, the environment. And that actually is even more powerful than some of the icons of product, you know, cool green product that, you know, you might see in the automotive space or in things that you don't buy every day. And so that's where I like to play, right? And I did say that I wanted my next business to be in a really large category that was growing really fast, okay. that was really high margin. <laughs> and just like cheap, fast, and good, you can only have two out of three. So um, nice. we are in a very low margin business, but you know, we're, we are reinventing you know, a staple in a category that's really big already and really growing. And the, you know, the feedback coming back from people who buy Ripple and drink Ripple and enjoy Ripple is, oh my gosh, you guys have just blown everybody away from a product experience. And what's, what's, what's really important about that from an impact standpoint is that most people now that try plant-based foods aren't vegetarians, mm-hmm. vegans, dietary restricted. They're just people that want to have more plant-based in their diet. And so for us, you know, good food wins. And we've got you know, the, the technology that allows us to create good food. Um, and, and that's, you know, we're trying to win. And, you know, Eric was your roommate. How, how did you and Neil know each other? Yeah. Another interesting story. So Neil started a company called Amaris, which is a renewable fuels and chemicals company. And 
actually Amherst and Method worked a little bit together on a joint development. And that's how I met Neil many years ago. And about 10 years ago, we were at a Fortune conference, and we were having a drink after hours. And we had this funny conversation. I remember saying to Neil, Neil, I'm so jealous of you. You have like a this cool technology. They were engineering yeast to turn sugar into biofuel. And I was like, you've got this cool technology that you can take and extend in all sorts of different product lines and monetize in lots of different ways. Man, I wish I had that. And he looked at me and he said, man, you know, you don't know how good you've got it because <laughs> I've got this technology, but in order for me to get it to market, I've got to get another company to put it in their products and it's never as important to them as it is to us. Mm -hmm. And like you get to have an immediate impact from a consumer standpoint. And little did we know it, but that was actually the genesis of Ripple Foods. And we, you know, said cheers, we had our drink, and that was it. And then eight years later, uh, Neil was actually working at a venture firm um, doing some work uh, in the food space. And he was tinkering, and he kind of came up with this idea around protein, and he asked, asked me to go to lunch with him and just to get some advice. And the first thing I told him was like, stay away, man. <laughs> Don't go into <laughs> consumer. You're nuts. <laughs> Um, but then once we started digging into it, um, that's when I really realized the potential of the impact that you could have by creating plant-based foods that were really, really good so that people enjoyed them just because they were enjoyable, not because they were plant-based foods. Um, and I knew it was going to be really hard and I knew it was going to be capital intensive, which our business, you know, is unfortunately. Um, but, uh, the size of the prize was so big that I thought, you know, this is a great second business because here's an opportunity to apply some of the lessons I've learned from the first business. Mm -hmm. The opportunity for impact is, is, is exponentially larger than even method was. And I'm massively proud of the impacts that we had, we had, and they still have with method. Um, and it's an opportunity to, to, you know, to really do something meaningful. Um, and that was just, that was the deciding factor. It was like, all right, we, we have to do this and it's, you know, it's not going to be easy, but, um, it's, it's right for us. And on the flip side, you know, you mentioned that there are a lot of great learnings that you had from method that you've actually taken over to ripple anything where sort of the, the I guess the contrary element was true in the sense that you had this great learning and you applied it and it just, it didn't work. So you had to kind of sort of unteach yourself this lesson? Oh, sure. Sure. There's a couple things. So I'll mention a, a couple kind of on either side of that. Um, so one is, uh, so trade marketing. In our business, there's, um, if you go into a grocery store and you see yellow tags on the shelf with a price discount, um, it's not the grocery store that pays for that. <laughs> <laughs> they actually make money off of that. Right. Um, it's, 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 we lowly manufacturers that pay for that. And that's, that's a trade promotion. So I, going into Ripple Foods was massively anti-trade promotion. And the reason is, you know, without going too, into too much detail, you don't want to discount your products too much. You chain people to buy it on discount. And, you know, it can, right. it can be not a healthy thing to do mm -hmm. it too much. Uh, and in generally in the consumer space, people promote way too much. So my theory going into Ripple Foods was if I could spend not a dime on trade, I would spend not a dime on trade, knowing that I have to spend some. Um, I was wrong. So um, trade has actually been a very effective vehicle. Now, we don't overdo it, but trade's been a very effective vehicle for introducing new people to a brand-new brand that, you know, is a brand-new thing, a milk made from peas that they hadn't heard about before. And so I'm happy to put, you know, uh, you know, you know, whatever, eat crow or whatever <laughs> about, my, uh, about being wrong there, and we're adjusting the business accordingly. Um, you know, some of the other things, like from method, um, 
one of the more radical experiments we're trying with Ripple Foods is that um, is around compensation. So um, Neil and I both walked away from our previous businesses with the thought that the people that really were great in our businesses, we would have happily paid them a lot more Hmm. than we paid them. And the people that weren't so good, we really would have preferred to pay them less, Mm -hmm. even if it meant more turnover or, you know, having to replace people. Um, And if you, you know, if you think about it, and maybe this is a bad analogy, but like think about a sports team, right? You know, the, the top, the top players on a sports team, they make, Right. eight times what the other guys make. And right. some people are stars and some people are role players and like, that's okay. Right. As long as you lead in a way where you know that everybody on the team is contributing to the success of the team and yeah. And knows it, their role and knows their role. And you know, Kobe gets 24 mil and you get two and sorry about that. But you know, if you can score 81 in a game, you get 24 mil as well. <laughs> um, and, and so it's more of a meritocracy based sort of thing. And so we're, we're experimenting with that um, in the way that we use equity compensation and without going into too much detail, we actually start a little bit lower than market mm-hmm. um, relative to, you know, where, what they could get in another, a different company. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then we're very aggressive about getting people way above market, mm-hmm. um, but you have to earn it. And, that's not how compensation works in most businesses. Usually you get a big slug of options and as long as you don't fall over, you know, and, or, or leave the company, you get that just right. for, just for making it through four years, right. yep. regardless of whether you're good or not. It, it's the, the critical, the critical part of it actually is before you even start, right? Cause, yeah. cause when you actually go and negotiate your, your actual contract, so you haven't actually worked the day yeah. most of the time. Yeah. And so you don't know, you've already paid for it and you don't know what you're going to get. And right. then once you know what you're going to get, you, You've given all the options to other people. So if they're great, you can't give them more because you don't have any dry powder. And if they suck, you can't take them away. So, you know, we're kind of changing that. Um, it does create a very brutal situation, by the way, that is just, it is what it is. In that, in order to get, in order to get other people, the, the, the real superstars, the level of ownership that, that really is, you know, above and beyond it means that your average performer just won't ever get to mm-hmm. what quote unquote market is. Right. So you're selling the idea that like everybody who's there has to bet on themselves basically. Yeah. Right. And yeah. that you kind of have to believe that you're going to be able to rise up and over, over index. Yeah. But so. you're saying you're not doing that anymore. No, right? no, we are doing that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. we are doing yeah. that. And I'm just saying it sets up this brutal dynamic right. where your average performer ends up with less right. than he or she could get at another company. Right. But they're average. And right. so I actually think it creates a virtuous circle because what it does is it forces you to have conversations about performance, mm-hmm. which I think is also something. I mean, one of the reasons that I think this sports analogy, you know, happens is it's very clear on the stat sheet who's, exactly. who's adding the most value. Right. Whereas in a business, it really isn't. Yeah. And and we're we're trying to we're trying to innovate there, I guess, is what yeah. I'd say. Yeah, that's, I think that's a great analogy, actually. Right. Because I do think, you know you're playing a role you can actually comp against other people playing that same role either with within the, your team or across different teams it's all out there um here you're trying to you're trying to create something from scratch and those metrics are a little bit hard to come by yeah yeah and i, I think it is important also to say that you know there there's not a lot of professional athletes that are like struggling to put you know <laughs> and, you know food on the table right. so you know i, w- I want to be right. very no. careful about my yeah. you know my analogy here um, but we're obviously not taking it anywhere near that extreme. And right. people that are working for us are all, you know, 
yeah. making making nice wages. So yeah, you're it, you're talking more <laughs> on the equity side yeah, than this is, than salary and bonus, where yeah. people are paying their mortgages and feeding their families. Yes, right. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. So in, the Neil dynamic. So you've you've talked a bit about um, your relationship with Eric and 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 what it was like to to have a co-founder early in your entrepreneurial career. So going into it with another co-founder here at Ripple, what are some of the things that you're doing differently? Beyond the fact that you guys have both been through co-founder situations before. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's like it starts with Neil and I first, right? So Neil and I have – we run the business together. Um, we are co-CEOs. And what that means – there are pros and cons to any, organi- uh, any structure, and there are certainly pros and cons to a co-CEO situation. Um, there are, I mean, I won't go into them, but it, it, I find it great that I have a partner that mm-hmm. can do a lot of stuff that I don't have to get into as much detail on. I think it's fantastic. Um, what it does require is that we have a lot of conversations every single day about, you know, hey, you, you know, are you aligned to this? What do you think about that? Um, if we're not aligned, it's the first thing we do is we go and we work it out, right? And we have very clear lines of who does what. You know, I kind of run the commercial side of the business, so I do all the supply chain operations, uh, sales marketing. He runs all the technology, finance. And so, you know, we defer to one another for the final decision if we are not aligned or, or if we don't agree, mm-hmm. right? But we always align, mm-hmm. right? And I think that that's, you know, that requires that type of maturity. It also requires an enormous amount of trust, um, Neil is a guy that comes from a, more of a tech background, and he makes me better. And he makes me better because he pushes me to be more aggressive. And it's easy when you're in a consumer world for a long time to kind of turn into a consumer guy. And, mm-hmm. and you're like, yeah, 20% growth, we're crushing it. And Neil <laughs> will be like, why can't we have 120% growth? And you're like, whoa, oh, uh, I guess... Uh, Okay, let's think about that, right? <laughs> and it and it's super super yeah. healthy, right? And I think I, I think he would say the same thing about me, which is you know it's also you know maybe I bring a little bit of discipline. Mm-hmm. Um, not that he's undisciplined, but you know I'm I'm sure I bring you know I bring things to that table too. Ripple Foods has raised um, over forty million dollars now, and we're we're doing original research, and we have a whole patent portfolio around a whole range of different technologies. We've built a pilot plant and, and some things. Uh, our markets are, are the, our addressable markets are very large, so we're comfortable making that level of investment. But uh, it is a more capital intensive business as a as a function of being yes a little bit lower margin. But but that actually has less to do with it. It's more about the fact that we're creating brand new uh, food food ingredients that haven't existed before we're manufacturing we're making those mm-hmm. um and scaling those up from startup mode to reasonable scale so you know that's most of what we're having to invest um the capital that we've raised in we'll probably do one more round uh, we will do one more round but um that'll probably be it and we'll be able to bring the business through to profitability and is the investor base different or similar to your to, to method uh, I would I would say different. Um, we have actually a couple of common investors that are sort of smaller on the cap table. But what Neil and I, I mean, Neil and I kind of represent in ourselves sort of a technology guy and a right. consumer guy, if you want to simplify things. And we wanted to bring, we actually think that's a huge advantage in our business because we think that that fortresses the businesses on, on two dynamics instead of most businesses kind of only have one. They're a technology business or most consumer businesses are just consumer businesses. And 
while we did some great things at Method from a from a you know formulation standpoint, like we didn't have a lot of owned I, I we didn't have IP that only Method owned and you know that sort of thing, and so it it creates a nice fortress position for the business, and we wanted the investor base to kind of reflect that. So to create the same sort of healthy tension between sort of growth-minded, I'm going to be, I'm going to grossly stereotype here, um, growth-minded, aggressive tech investors, mm-hmm. and more um, uh, steady as she goes, build a business by the traditional metrics, um, uh, blocking and tackling type of consumer uh, mix, and so. We have both by design um, in on our cap table. That makes sense. And then, you know, it's it's early in the journey. But are there are there certain learnings that you've already had on on that where you had a thesis on how the business side was going to work, but you've already had to make a pivot from a business standpoint? Fortunately, we haven't had to make any large pivots, but there have been certainly some learnings. I mean, mentioned the the trade spend angle yep. mm-hmm. um, early on. Um, I, there are other, some other things about sort of the audience that, um, we attract and reasons why people buy the product. Um, the reasons why actually are exactly what we hoped they would be. It's high in protein and lower in sugar and it's creamy and delicious, like some features and benefits. Great. Mm -hmm. But, um, where that, that message really resonates with people and then how to start to, uh, get people to really buy into that, I think is, is important, um, and, and a learning for us. Um, you know, on the supply chain side and the technology side, I think that that's always, some, uh, particularly on the technology side, that always goes, you have to kind of let it go where it's going to go. And what we've learned is that we've got new capabilities that we thought we would, didn't know that we would have to make certain types of you know, new plant-based foods, where in other areas, you know, we're, we're still getting up the curve on our ability to bring to market really delicious foods in these areas. Um, not surprisingly, um, and this is not the only reason, but the not surprisingly, our product portfolio reflects the things that we think we'll be able to execute on really, really well in the next several years. Um, can't say what those things would be, <laughs> yeah. um, but all consistent with the strategy. Um, and there's still, that technology gives us opportunity that's really, really broad, both geographically and, and from a different you know, channels, customers' products. Um, but, in, but we're staying focused on, you know, building ripple into a, a master brand in the, in the dairy space. What's the hardest part about scaling ripple? You know, I think the hardest part is actually just the blocking and tackling, you know, every new manufacturer you bring on every new bit of capacity that you bring on, there are things that go wrong and the best businesses anticipate those and mitigate their impacts and are really good at res- as, at dealing with them when they pop up. And we've had a few of those things where we brought on another manufacturer and the first batch that they made didn't work and we had to throw it away and and things like that. So far we've you know knock on wood, we've uh managed to avoid any really big mistakes. Um but and I think that's the key, <laughs> right? It's right. it's respond to the anticipate as many as you can. Respond to the little ones as fast as you can and don't make any huge ones. And that's, that's kind of what I'm trying to do with this one. What's Ripple going to look like five years from now? Yeah, I mean, I think what I hope we're doing is we're introducing a whole uh, 
cadre of people to their first plant-based food experience. And we're doing that through a whole range of products that really start with the dairy regimen because that's usually the gateway into plant-based eating, but goes beyond that. And I think that if we're doing that, and we're really that bridge for people into plant-based eating, Mm -hmm. that's an enormously valuable place for us to be from a strategic standpoint. Um, And and it's what I think we can deliver on. So um, that's where I hope we'll be. Um, What that means in terms of, you know, the numbers, you know, we'll see. Across these multiple businesses that you've been part of at this point, was there ever a, a bet the company moment? Yeah, yeah, there there definitely have been a couple. Of, um, <laughs> fortunately, so far at Ripple, there hasn't been a bet the company moment. I, I'm 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 trying to avoid bet the company moments right. because the thing about a bet the company moment is if you don't win the bet, right, you're screwed, right, right. Um, there was one that I know of. You know, at, at at Method, I'll tell you the story. We we originally were pitching Target with our brand and thinking, hey, Target's gonna love this. Like it's totally Target, right? Well, they didn't, and they hated it, and they told us to get lost, and we were dead in the water. And so we hired a fancy product designer named Karim Rashid, and he's this larger-than-life guy in this white suit and pink <laughs> goggles. And we did this whole dog and pony show, our last dime, and we actually used a, a connection that Eric had through Target's marketing department, which is different from the buyers, which are in the merchandising department. And they were all excited about designer, right? Right. We're going to get Karen Rashid in the building. So we got a meeting with the marketing department. They sort of dragged the merchants along. And we did a big dog and pony show. I actually, to be true, I was actually not in the room at the time because I was building the prototypes of the product that they were presenting. (laughs) Um, And literally, like, first overnight. And I'm like, I'd been up for, you know, seven days straight and little sleep and all that. Uh, And... You know, they 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 decided to give us a test um, in that meeting, and had they not, I mean, we we basically had, had spent our last time. What do you think going into that? Actually, were you like a fifty fifty? I have no idea. I have no idea, and I was so blinded by just the the crushing amount of work that I was doing to try to get a functional prototype in front, so that this guy in the pink goggles could sell it. <laughs> that, uh, you didn't even question it. You're like, oh, I just, I just got to get the yeah, work done. It, I mean, I, like it's, I don't know. It, it seems to me a little bit like, this is going to be a weird analogy. I'm just going to forewarn you. <laughs> it, it, it's sort of like what my wife tells me having a child is like. Like you just sort of forget. <laughs> you forget all the pain. Like you just, you know, a couple years on, you're like, what was, what, what happened? Right? So... I told you it was going to be weird. Yeah. I'm going to stay away from that, commenting <laughs> on that one. Um, you know, I think a lot of people look look at the method stories all up and to the right, but obviously it's, you know, with any entrepreneurial journey, it's not. Is there a particular low point that really stands out in your mind? Yeah, I mean, the low point for me was when we had to retrench the business. And, you know, we fortunately we did get all together and say, listen, this th- we can't keep doing it this way. We got to shrink this business. We got to retrench. We got to focus on the core, and we did do all those things, but the pain was immense. Um, not just of executing that, but you know, for two years after that, the you know the confidence of the business was shaken, and it took a lot of leadership and repetition to get people back through that. And you had to get to a point where you were demonstrating, like, hey, we're growing again, and you know the numbers are looking good, and. Um, you know, that was the biggest and most severe of them. But, you know, with, with, with Method, there were lots of products that, you know, we thought were going to work and didn't. Mm-hmm. And programs that we thought would 
help us grow and didn't and people we hired that we thought were going to be amazing and weren't and you know you just you you know you try to build processes to prevent those things from happening you got to get good at dealing with them and then again try to avoid the big ones right but on the flip side method's been one of the most iconic brands in the emerging uh, entrepreneurial space and ripple's been one of the most promising plant-based companies out there so there's a lot of high points is there one that really resonates with you you know i think that i think that the way that we changed the ownership of method the way we sold method and the manner in which that happened and what we did after that in doing really meaningful urban revitalization in a, in a city that really needs it and bringing under the method tent a lot of people that, you know, need their jobs a lot worse than we need our jobs, frankly. Um, and, and seeing how that actually changed people's lives at a really meaningful level is just, it's just so profound. And I mean, I'll always be, I think it's a once in a lifetime opportunity. Maybe I'll have another opportunity. We'll see. But um, it was amazing. Well, it um, lines up with the priorities that you you outlined. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you want business to create positive impact on society, I mean, what better example is there than that? That's right. And um, hopefully we'll get to that point with Ripple. We're, we're scaling it up so that maybe we'll have the opportunities to do those things. And in the meantime, you know, we, we actually are quantifying what we call our Ripple effect at, mm. uh, at Ripple. And we're really proud of the results, you know, in the first year of just the product we sold in year one we um you know we 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 got people 200 tons more protein and 160 tons less sugar um we saved about 7 million pounds of carbon and 66 billion gallons of water um just just from and you're just and you're just getting started and we're just getting started so you know that's a little ripple effect that you know the credit for that belongs to our consumers um and we're trying to build a movement of people that you know just want to get a little bit better every day um, you know, I think there's a lot of businesses now I'm, now I'm really commenting, you know, but, uh, there's a lot of businesses out there that sort of claim that they're going to save the world. Um, we don't, uh, I think it's a team effort. It's going to take a lot of businesses mm-hmm. working together and a lot of uh, people outside of business as well to create the, you know, the sort of changes we want to see. And, you know, ripple is about being one small thing that leads up to, um, a really large impact. And hopefully we can continue to do that. That's really well said. Um, in terms of what's, these days, what's keeping you up at night? Scaling. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, we're launching new products. We're, we're growing the business very quickly. We're bringing on new manufacturers and all of those things, there's growing pains that are associated with that and just making sure that we execute really well. I mean, I guess maybe a more interesting answer is I think that, I think we have a really great strategic advantage and we've got a great product advantage mm-hmm. at Ripple. I mean, nobody has the protein content and the smoothness and, you know, the lower sugar content. I mean, we're just so differentiated that if we execute well, I'm certain that we're going to be successful. And so that I'm just laser focused on execution. So what we just heard from Adam was really it was more of a co-founder story. You know, it was Adam. It was his method co-founder, Eric Ryan, and all the ups and downs that those guys went through. Yeah, and in, in many ways, as Adam himself mentioned, it's like marriage. They started as friends, um, so in effect, they dated, and then they they realized they were a good fit for each other. So they started uh, they started a company together in Method. So got married, but like many marriages, there's ups and downs and, and challenges where 
they sought counseling to work through it, but mm-hmm. ultimately it was a very successful outcome in the great brand that they built and method. And obviously Adam likes to try new things. He conquered cleaning products and now he's trying to conquer dairy. That's, that's a small category, huh? <laughs> and if that isn't enough, he's also kind of a big deal out on the water as well. And yes, that is an understatement. When you're not co-founding iconic brands, is there, how, how do you spend your time? Ooh, that's a good question for my wife. She'll tell you that I have a lot of hobbies. <laughs> um, I, most of them involve water sports. Um, so I'm an avid sailor and kiteboarder. Um, oh, and nice. so when I'm not... I heard you're being modest there. I mean, you're, 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 you're quite the accomplished sailor, right? Well, thank you. Thank you, Wayne. Um, yeah, I've, I uh, won a world championship last year. Oh, um, wow. And uh, actually participated... Uh, I was the alternate for the Olympic team in sailing in the Sydney Games in 2000. Um, and now I'm just a weekend warrior, but uh, <laughs> but try to do my best. And but I like to challenge myself as well. You know, I'm I'm doing uh, I'm, I'm kiteboarding on foiling kiteboards, which is oh, a very wow. sort of odd thing. It's a board that hovers above the water on foils and rips around at 40 miles an hour. And believe me, I am not the world champion at that. <laughs> I am far from the world. I'm like last in that. But uh, you know, it's it's always good to challenge yourself. That's great. When are you going to turn that into an Olympic sport? Actually, foiling kiteboarding is going to be a demonstration sport in 2020 oh, wow. in Tokyo. Um, you getting ready? Mm, I think I might be over my prime on that one. The sponsorship, I think, right I think there. I'll leave that to the 25 <laughs> year olds, and uh, you know, I'll I'll just do it recreationally. All right, Adam, you ready for our signature game? Rapid fire, fill in the blank. It's going to be the most hard hitting, serious questions you're going to have today. It's going to be some real tough ones, but this is going to be harder. I'm you ready. ready. <laughs> I'm ready. Speed round. All right, let's do this. So, the first thing you read every day is Facebook. What's your favorite movie? Uh, Dude, Where's My Car? Karaoke song you're most likely to belt out. <laughs> Hit me with, with your best shot by Pat Benatar because that's what my wife likes to sing. Nice. Your hometown is famous for? Cars. What's your guilty pleasure? Tortilla chips. First car you ever drove? Uh, that would be a Corvette. Ooh. Ooh. Runner-up name for your business that didn't make the cut? Uh, Modus. Do you recline on airplanes? No. If you could drink one thing for the rest of your life besides water, what do you choose? Ripple, obviously. <laughs> what was your last New Year's resolution? Uh, to anticipate my wife's needs. Oh, wow. <laughs> so dreamy. I'm so <laughs> dreamy. What, so a dreamy. Husband. what a husband. Yeah. If you were stranded on an island and you could only bring one thing, what would it be? My kiteboard. What's the last hashtag you used? Ripple effect. Where is the next place you'd like to travel? Why? If a movie was made of your life, you'd be played by? Uh, Josh Duhamel. Talent you don't have, but wish you did? Uh, uh, play the guitar. What's your most hated food? Mustard. If you could be... Oh! Okay. Strong performance. But not quite But there. not quite okay. all time. Now, okay. You're not going to the Olympics on this one. Okay. So. <laughs> okay. All right. Last question for you today uh, is, you know, for all the entrepreneurs out there, any words of wisdom? Yeah, I think I, I think some of your guests have said just don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I actually have the complete opposite point of view. I actually think that you learn so much as an entrepreneur that win or lose, it's an amazing experience. And um, I think that we're so fortunate to live in a country where 
you can try and fail and have it not be a black mark from a career standpoint, that as long as you learn and as long as you can articulate what you've learned from that experience, I think it's a, I think there's a no lose. And I think that, you know, it, there's a huge psychological barrier for a lot of people. Certainly there are some people that are cut for it, uh, up for it and aren't. Um, but my advice would be, you know, if you're waffling, just jump in and you'll find that whatever happens, you will be different than you were before. Nice. Well, Adam, really appreciate you coming, carving out time to, to join our podcast. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you. You've been listening to Unfinished Biz. I'm Robin. And I'm Wayne. We'll be back on the next episode with Connor Begley and Jonathan Namnath co-founders of Tribe Dynamics, which took on the beauty industry by reinventing how influencer marketing is measured. Not an easy task, more like almost impossible. They wanted to reach out to a thousand influencers, and so we recommended those thousand influencers, but they didn't vet them, so they reached out to them, and then it pissed off the, like, all of the the PR teams and it got up to the president of the brand and like it was just a total mess and then like and then after the total mess it actually kind of leveled out and we thought it was going great and then they're like yeah we can't do this like it was a total wreck that's next time on unfinished biz unfinished biz is a vmg partners production you can subscribe to our show for free in any podcast app of your choice send us questions comments and feedback on twitter at unfin underscore biz and visit us at unfinishedbiz.com.